0: Hi, I'm Manuela Bonanno from Columbia University. I'm here with Stephen McCannon, And please, Steve, uh, introduce yourself. Where do you work?
1: So, I'm Stephen McMahon. I'm from currently working in Queen's University, Belfast. I've just returned there after a period at Massachusetts General Hospital. So I'm currently on a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellowship there, um, which is paid for my time in Mass General Hospital. And now
0: return here in Belfast. I see. And now what's your line of work? I know that you are involved in multiple (laughs) projects and you have several expertise, but yeah, yeah, tell us more.
1: So my background's originally in physics, so my undergrad and my PhD were both in physics and quite applied physics areas. Mm -hmm. Um, My PhD started off looking at radiation dose calculation questions effectively um, around gold nanoparticles. But towards the end of my PhD, I started looking a bit more into biological processes, um, and then afterwards I got a job actually in a cancer center, and there we were looking at actually modeling biological processes from sort of the, the stuff which happens after physics. So starting from things like DNA damage and seeing, can we predict how the cells respond to that, whether they live or die. And so that's been sort of the main area of focus I've had in trying to build better
0: models. Can you give us more details? So you were talking about uh, processes, biological Mm. processes, Um, and uh, in particular DNA damage after exposure to ionizing radiation in general. So,
1: So physics is very good at predicting the level of dose and how much energy goes into the cell. And we have pretty good models of how that then turns into double strand breaks and DNA damage. And we get that that's reasonably well known. But the problem is what happens after that and whether the cell lives, dies, gets a mutation, um, continues to proliferate, that's much less well-known. We have quite empirical models of this, like the linear quadratic, where we just fit survival as a function of dose. And it's not really understanding underlying mechanisms. But I mean, societies like this for decades have all this lovely data on how all of these individual processes break down and what they do. And so what we're trying to do is build these into a model together and see, can we predict what happens at the end? So say so the main focus is DNA repair. So we're trying to model the kinetics of DNA repair through the different processes like non-homologous end-joining, homologous recombination, and then Predict whether it's successful or not, and how the cell then responds to these events in terms of clinically relevant endpoints.
0: So, um, I'm not an expert in uh, in modelling, and uh, but then, uh, for what I understand, you start with uh, you know trying to characterise what happened in one cell, hmm. and then eventually you have to um, to see what happened in a more complex system. Yeah. And I bet <laughs> that this is very, very complicated. Mm. Um, and then eventually you have to try to mimic what happens in an organ, yeah. right? So h- how does it work?
1: <laughs> You're right, it's very challenging. That's challenging. certainly one of the big, big questions. Um, one of the nice things about some of the mechanistic stuff we're actually applying it to processes is that we know how these things change a bit better than when you go from a, like a, a Petri dish to a tumor or a tissue. Um, so like if you just have an in vitro dose response curve it gives you some idea of what will happen in vivo but it's not great but if you know that you've shifted the cell in your model you know your cells are more likely to be in G0 or G1 they're likely to have different oxygen tension and you already have a model of how that happens you can make more robust predictions and try and get more detail in there's still a lot of challenges I mean that very small tumor is a billion cells a big tumor could be a trillion cells so that's computationally very challenging and there's a lot of details on what happens inside with changes in oxygen level, proliferation, reoxygenation. But as I say, these societies have decades of data on this. There's loads of information and I think it's a real opportunity to try and bring all this together and try and understand what's going on.
0: So what's your major goal? What is your project?
1: So the current focus so of my work um, has been trying to do effectively prediction of radiation sensitivity from phenotypic characteristics, so basically looking at the repair pathways and saying these repair pathways are functional, these aren't in this particular cell. High sensitive is this cell and seeing can we predict sensitivity. So some work I'm presenting here is looking at this in vitro um, where we show that based on a very crude um, phenotype, just a few pathways mm-hmm. basically on or off, we can already do pretty good predictions of in vitro radiation sensitivity. And so the long-term goal is to try and build this up so that rather than doing this very crude, we manually say yes, no, yes. We can get a systematic way of doing this in new cell lines, in particular patient-derived samples. So potentially you could, at the beginning of treatment, get a patient sample and say, this patient is going to be sensitive to radiation, resistant to radiation. And then we can start personalizing the dose we're giving in radiotherapy because at the minute that's typically one-size-fits-all in a given cancer and that's, we know that's, we can do better.
0: Right. So this brings me to um, the next question. How do you validate your models all the mm-hmm. time? I mean, when...
1: Um, yeah, yeah, it's very it's very tempting. You can make a very big, very complex model that'll fit anything if you just put all the data in and you know, tweak all the parameters and get it out. Um, so there tends to need to be a bit of restraint. So one of the big things in trying to build a model is trying to keep things common and shared as possible so you don't have this huge proliferation of parameters. Um, and so one part is just testing predictive power, so bringing in new data, new cell lines, which you haven't previously modeled, and looking can you predict this. Um, but one benefit of the way this mechanistic stuff is being put together is that we can predict a bunch of different endpoints. So we don't just model survival. We model mutations, DNA, parakinetics, and this gives us multiple tests. Picture, yeah. And so. A lot. I mean, a lot of different things can happen to cause a cell to die. So if you know it has ten percent survival, you don't know exactly what goes on. But if you know it has persistent double-strand breaks, that tells you something. If you know it has a high rate of mutation, that tells you something different. And we can test these other ideas as well.
0: I see. So what's next then in uh, in, in this project? Mm. So, I imagine that there are many, many, yeah. uh, many, many questions. <laughs>
1: yeah, this, as you get closer to the clinic, it proliferates, and there's far more variables. Yes. Um, the main thing I'm keen to look at now is trying to make this approach a bit more systematic. So for cells we look at in vitro, we can measure the, the availability of the DNA repair mm-hmm. process. So that's time-consuming but doable. Yeah. But if you're looking at a clinical case, it's just not going to be possible to no. do all these experiments. So what we're looking to do is trying to do... A, it's not quite a genomic approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a good name for it yet.
0: Oh, you put but just genomics. Yeah, at the omics the end, is very trendy. And so finish so keep it going. But yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, where we take a very targeted look. So look at the genes we know are involved in a specific pathway, mm-hmm. and use that to generate this prediction of whether the pathway is functional or not, without having to do all the experiments. And if we can do that, and then do this very bottom up prediction of radiation sensitivity, mm-hmm. that gets a big step closer to predicting how patients respond. And indeed, that doesn't tell you the whole story, but it's actually, there's good evidence that's sort of an independent predictor. Of, so you can get a degree of stratification even from that without understanding all that complexity in vivo.
0: Yeah. Well, what is fascinating about um, uh, our work as radiobiologists is that uh, many times we have to collaborate with. Uh, people with different expertise. Mm. So uh, you are a physicist as a background, but then a modeler, and then you have to use biology to yeah. validate um, uh, some of the models. So I, I bet you, close, you work very closely to biologists. Mm. Or, I don't know, if you, um, if you work uh, with some biology yourself,
1: I've done a, bit, a few bits of biology. I'm much better modeling than I am in biology. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I've done a bit just to get it. It's good to get a feeling for what goes on yeah. because, as a physicist, you're often tempted, oh, we need more data for this. Can you test these 300 things? But if you know how long it takes to test each one of those, yeah. you think a bit harder about what you're doing. How you do
0: yeah, that was my point. Like, how is the communication mm. uh, in betwe- between between? You know, a modeler, physicist's point of view and a biologist's point of view and how to bridge that.
1: I mean, I think the key thing is working closely together. So, I mean, what was really good about the post I had after my PhD was I was actually in a cancer center. So I was in an office with biologists all the time. And that meant you, you, I was at the talks they gave about their various subjects. And that meant I got a much better feeling for what was going on. Um, whereas if I was over in the physics department and I came by for a meeting once a fortnight or whatever, you probably wouldn't have had that contact. It would have been a lot harder to learn about the various issues and just a lot of the underlying mechanisms. So now I have a really good relationship with all the various people in our department. So Kevin Price and Carl Butterworth are very involved in the society as well. I'm there.
0: And sometimes also the language is a little bit different. Yeah. So you, 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 you learn you these grasp issues. now yeah. all the way. Yeah.
1: to me, I think that's a big thing. And it's partly why the society is so good because you get all these different backgrounds in the one place for a while and they mm. communicate so a bit better. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh. So um, I mentioned that uh, you have different projects mm. going on or you, you collaborate. Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us more about other? I don't know satellite project yeah. or just collaborations I mean, yeah, so that the, you have.
1: One of the benefits about being a physicist in a biology lab is there's a lot of expertise you can contribute to a lot of projects. I mean, it's not even a lot of the projects could continue without it, but it's nice to have, and you get a bit more insight. So, my original PhD project was looking at gold nanoparticle radiosensitizers. Mm-hmm. So this is the idea of using you know, gold nanoparticles to sensitize tumours preferentially to ionizing radiation. Um, so I did a lot of work there on the physics side of that um, during my PhD. And so when it came to the end of the PhD, it seemed that there was actually a lot more biology going on than we had in the models, but I'm still quite involved in projects we have in Belfast there, because you're providing some of that physics insight and just seeing, does this make sense with various calculations and trying to keep the, physics and biology talking and project
0: What's the ultimate um, biological model that you are going to use? Which tumor is your preferred?
1: <laughs> I mean, so the nanoparticles have shown quite good efficacy in a variety of tumor types. The problem is there's a lot of tailoring needs to be done there because it turns, it turns out the biology of these particles is much more complex than we had initially expected. And, Minor changes to the composition of the particles cause all sorts of impacts on. Yeah,
0: I imagine even just the size. Oh, yeah,
1: the size is big, but (gasps) then.
0: Or, you know, the coding, if it's gold versus silver, and of of course, with the interaction with ionizing radiation.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of complexity there, so there's a lot of interest in a whole range of tumor types. Mm -hmm.
0: What's your specific interest? Uh,
1: um, well, see, I came in from the physics side. So most of my stuff was actually just generally applicable. In Belfast, we're primarily looking at um, prostate as a model. Um, there's some interest in both gold and um, gadolinium-based nanoparticles in that area. Um, so there's yeah some investigations, considerations of trying to see if we can be involved in a clinical trial with some gadolinium nanoparticles, which are currently being trialled in a few other sites, which would be very exciting to see some of that data just finally coming through in an actual application, which is very nice. Um, so, I mean, as there's other projects, well, in a similar vein, um, Kevin is very involved in relative biological effectiveness measurements in protons and ions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I've contrib- contributed a bit there, again, doing some of the physics, sanity checking, applying some modeling expertise and looking at models like the local effect model mm-hmm. and just testing them against the data, seeing does it agree with what we've seen before, are there new processes, new factors coming out? Wow.
0: What did you find there?
1: Um, so in, Most of the stuff correlates pretty well with the local effect model. We did find some interesting discrepancies in some recent data between Mm -hmm. pristine bright peaks where you have uh, protons nearly one energy. a Bit of a spread but quite small. Whereas in a spread out bright peak where you have a big range, Mm we seem to be a bit of a divergence from what was predicted. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a different dependence on linear energy transfer and proton energy, which could be quite significant because a lot of interest in starting to do um, RBE and LET painting and proton therapy. And if it turns out there's higher order interactions, depending on how you meter these beams in, that could be quite challenging to apply clinically. So, Mm -hmm. I see,
0: Stephen. Anything else you want to to talk about with us today? (laughs) Um, I don't know. Any other um, study that you are doing, or
1: I mean, yeah. So the other or or
0: some just curiosity or interest that you might want to one day uh, work on. (laughs)
1: No, I mean, I think the, I mean, the interaction between all the bits in the society is very important. Trying to get this, I mean, as a physicist, I'm quite keen on the model and trying to break down things and understand things and build these predictive models. I think that's something that has failed by the way I said a bit radiation biology was, if you look in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of really good, very hardcore models depending on, you know, understanding these linear quadratic models, DNA or kinetics. I think things have gotten a bit split up in the last... Twenty, thirty years, maybe, where there's been a lot of molecular biology going on over here, a lot of physicists going on over here, and that's been a bit of a challenge, I think, in the field, and trying to really deliver on some of these experiments we've done and translate them into the clinic. I think it's getting a bit better, and I think something decided like this are important. For, and I think it would be good if we expand this modeling out basically everywhere, and look at trying to get more predictive models and trying to quantify things a bit better. and stuff. I can't do all of it, but hopefully if people get enthusiastic and get involved. And, and
0: I wonder, best. you know, just thinking about all the omics, uh, I wonder if that, thanks to uh, technology development, mm. now we have access to many more high throughput yeah. uh, endpoints, which can be a very good source of data for you guys yeah. who take care of, of all the yeah. modeling part.
1: I mean, there are, there are a few very interesting studies coming through where there's some of these high throughput clonogenic survival and mutational Mm assays, which are very nice because then, rather than having five cell lines, you have 50, 500 measurements, and that's, because the scarcity of data has been one of the big problems in radiation biology, just because everything takes so much time. But yeah, so I think it's a very exciting time to start putting all these things together and maybe bringing them towards the clinic.
0: That's great, Stephen. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I look forward to uh, read more about your publications even though for the modelling I'm not going to understand very much, but now, after the interview, I'm sure. Thanks very much. Thank you for your time.